We are in Romans chapter 5. This morning we're looking at verses 6 through 11, Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. And if you're using the church Bible, you'll find that on page 942. And I know, as usual, you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open, reading along with me. Um, And perhaps just quickly, for the sake of background, the Apostle Paul is still in that section where he is explaining the need for the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith alone, how we're justified, how we get a right standing with God by faith alone in Christ alone, how Jesus has done everything that we could have never done through all of our law keeping. We're still in that section. We have two more parts to that section before we move into sanctification in chapter 6. And we fall right in the middle here of chapter 5, and we're going to look this morning at Romans 5, 6 through 11. And before we do, let me pray for us and then... um, Pray for God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would add your blessing to the preaching of your word. You have said in the scriptures that through the foolishness of the message preached, it pleases you to save those who believe. And our God, we thank you that you have appointed preaching and the preaching of the gospel as that foolish means to the end of the salvation of our souls. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be formed in us as your word is preached We pray that we would see you and that you would show us your glory this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 5, beginning in verse 6. There the Apostle Paul says, For while while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Sends the reading of God's holy and inspired word to us this morning. Well, my father-in-law, some of you know, owns a farm in Waynesboro, Georgia, a thousand-acre farm, and it's magnificent. And I like to try to get there any chance I can, and I like to take anybody I can with me to this farm. And one of the things I often do whenever I tell people about the farm, I tell them usually... Really, you have no idea how nice this farm is. And I can see in their eyes that they have no idea how nice this farm is. And then when I get to take people to this farm, and they say, wow, this is a really nice farm, and I usually say, wait, we haven't even seen half of it. There's so much more. There's so many parts to this farm. There's so many places to go. There's so many places to explore. It is magnificent. And I think that what the Apostle Paul is doing in these verses in Romans 5, 6 through 11 is saying to us, you have no idea how magnificent the gospel is. And as he starts to tell us how magnificent he is, Paul comes to a point where he says, listen, there's much more. There's always much more. There's always more to see. There's always more to get. There's always more of the majesty of Jesus and the benefits we have in him to get in the gospel. And what Paul does in these verses is actually one of the most important portions of scripture for those who struggle with assurance of salvation. 
is the Apostle Paul actually sets out the magnificent glory of God's love that lay behind his justifying his people. So what Paul's doing here in verses 6 through 11 is he's actually taking us back behind justification. He's talked all about how we come to be justified, how we get a right standing with God, how it's by faith alone and Christ alone, how you become righteous before God, trusting in Jesus alone. And what Paul now does is he takes you back behind that and he says, listen, behind that, let me open the veil. Behind that is the everlasting love of God for his people. Behind that is the everlasting love of God for his people, and it is so magnificent that you have no idea there is so much more. And notice what Paul does. He really, you could divide this section, verses 6 through 8. Paul gives us an exhibition of God's redeeming love, and then in verses 9 through 11, he gives us the extent of God's redeeming love. Well, notice there that Paul says in verse 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, it's interesting, the section right before this, Paul has said that that we, because we're justified, we um, rejoice in hope of the glory of God, and it enables us to go through tribulations because we understand that those tribulations have purpose and that that purpose is that God builds character, gives us endurance, and builds us up in hope so that we hope more for the glory to come. And so, and, and then Paul climaxes and says, and, and we know this because God has poured his love out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And it's possible that somebody might say, well, that's right. I've experienced this and I put my trust in Jesus and I did this and I did this. And they could then somehow mistakenly understand that what lay behind all of that was God's love for his people and that God was doing it for the most unworthy of all people because all of us are unworthy. And so Paul's now driving home the greatness of the love of God. And notice this in verse six. He says, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, I don't know how I can ever adequately press into our minds and hearts how important it is for us to get that God loved the ungodly. Because by nature, our consciences are so wired to try to make ourselves better or put ourselves in an acceptable level. We do that on social settings. We clean ourselves up. We say to other people, my, you clean yourself up well. You're doing good for yourself. You did good here. You worked hard. You achieved. Our whole, our whole experience is built on your own efforts in human living. And the Bible takes that and it wipes it away. And the Bible says God loves ungodly people. God loves ungodly people. It doesn't say when we were pretty needy, God loved the lovable or those who had had his love already poured into their hearts and then he decided to love them because they were better now and they were walking better and they were living better. No, the Bible says God loves the ungodly. I love this and you have to listen carefully. Sinclair Ferguson said, God has shown his love only to those who are under his wrath. That's an unbelievably profound statement. God has shown his love only to those who are under his wrath because we're all under his wrath by nature. This is Paul's point. God only shows his love to people that are under his wrath. And I want to read this next statement. This is remarkable. John Murray said that God could love the ungodly 
far less that he did love them, would never have entered into the heart of man. I want to say that this morning. You on your own would never, ever, ever conceive of a God who loved ungodly people. And when unbelievers say, I believe God is love, they don't believe God is love. They believe he's a taskmaster if they believe anything about him. And they don't believe that he is a God full of love because they don't believe on his son. And they don't take the demonstration of that love and they don't trust the God who has loved ungodly people. And so John Murray's right. We would never, ever, ever have conceived of a God who loves ungodly people. And yet that is the God of scripture. And it's because of his everlasting love for people that don't deserve that love that we get redeemed. And so Paul says, notice, he gives us actually four descriptions of the objects of God's love. Notice there in in verse six, he calls us weak. He says in verse six, While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We were weak. We were ungodly. And then notice this, verse 8, God shows his love to us. And while we were sinners, we were weak. We were ungodly. We were sinners. Christ died for us. And then notice this, verse 10, for if while we were enemies. So by nature, we are weak. We are helpless. We can't do anything spiritually good. We are like everybody in the Gospels that have withered hands or are blind or lame or dead. That's us spiritually. We are weak. We are helpless. We can do nothing. We are like the paralytic who has to be let down through the roof, shingles coming off, his friends dropping him into the midst so that Jesus could heal him. We are absolutely helpless. And then Paul says, we are ungodly. Now, that is, on the one hand the most apt description of what we are by nature. It's the most fitting description of what we are by nature. And yet it is arguably the hardest thing for us to get our minds around. God created man and woman in his image. The Bible says he made man and woman in his image and his likeness, morally upright, to worship him, to serve him. He, he lived in communion with Adam and Eve and fellowship with them. And, brun- and they, they reflected what, what God was like. Um, when a king would conquer a land, he would um, have a statue erected, an image, to say, this is what the great king so-and-so is like. That's what God did at creation. He made man and woman in his image. He put them in this world that he had made to reflect what he is like. And in the fall, we became completely unlike God. The image of God was so marred and defaced, it would be like somebody coming up to that image and spraying, putting graffiti all over it. And, and so now we are not just unlike God. We are not just not sort of like God. We are the complete antithesis of what God is like. So the worst thing men can do is think, here's what I think about God, and then create a God in their own image because of their own likeness. And that's what men do all the time. And, and when we do that, we're creating an ungodly God. We're creating an idol that I think God is like this when we are the last people who have any right whatsoever to tell anybody what God is like. God must come to us because we are ungodly. We are unlike him. And so I think it's important for us, if we're going to understand the greatness of God's love, to get, to get what he says about us by nature. Then he tells us we're sinners, that by nature we transgress his law, we We do everything wrong under the sun. And if you don't do it externally, you do it internally. And frankly, let me say this this morning. It is worse 
if you are internally rebellious and you will not own up to that. It is actually worse. Jesus said that prostitutes go to heaven before self-righteous, internally rebellious people that will not acknowledge their sinfulness. Prostitutes, the Lord Jesus said this, will go to heaven before people that are inwardly self-righteous and rebellious and will not own up that they are sinners. So the Bible says that we are weak, we are ungodly, we are sinful. And then the last description, and maybe one that will sit very uncomfortably with you, is that by nature, we are God's enemies. We are at war with God. When we do wrong things by nature, when we walk in wrong paths by nature, we are showing that enmity. When we transgress God's law, we are showing our hatred for God. And I've never, ever, ever met someone in a church that says, I hate God. I've met people who say, I'm angry with God. I don't know why God would do this. I've never, ever, ever met somebody that consciously has said, I hate God in the church. And yet it is true that every one of us by nature have been God haters. Paul will actually tell Titus, that by nature, we hated God and hated one another. That's a description of all men. Here's what's remarkable. Here's what's remarkable. We've met this word ungodly already in this epistle. This is not the first time it's shown up. Um, we, we saw a description of the ungodly in chapter 1, didn't we? That's all men, that catalog of ungodliness. Chapter 1, that's what everybody's like. Everybody's sold into sin. Everybody's depraved. Everybody's fallen and corrupt. Everybody's ungodly. And those are the sort of people that God has loved. Now that's remarkable to me because as I think about my sinfulness, my natural enmity toward God, my ungodliness, my weakness, and I think about the, the, crush, the crushing blow that strikes to my pride, because we all should know that. And yet, at that time of, of conviction and, and um, even at times condemnation, the message of God's love comes, I have loved an ungodly people. I have loved a people who are ungodly. We were told that Abraham was ungodly, that God justifies the ungodly. The objects of God's love are not good people. They are wicked people. Now, what should that do for us besides make us marvel that God could love someone like us? That should also make us long for everyone around us to know the same grace and mercy we've received in Christ. And if you could think this morning of someone that you just absolutely wish God would wipe off the face of the earth because of evil that they're doing, and you would, you would be saddened if you heard that they were converted, then you have not gotten this. If you could think of somebody the worst kind of sexual predator, the worst kind of uh, dictator, the cruelest kind of uh, leader of genocide and infanticide and everything else, and you would be sad if you heard that God had redeemed them by grace and that they were trusting in Christ and on their way to glory, and you're like, that's not fair, they should have been wiped out, then you have not gotten this. That's the big implication for how we view everybody and how we view ourselves, that God has loved us. God has loved an ungodly people. Listen, if you lack assurance, it's probably because you haven't gotten this. Because when we lack assurance, we take our eyes off of Jesus. We take our eyes off of what God has done for us in Christ. And we put them on our own performance. We are automatically saying, God loves people who do good enough. I'm not doing good enough. I failed here and here and here. So my assurance is diminished. 
And what you're ultimately saying is that God loves good people. That's what we do when we struggle with assurance. We're ultimately saying God loves people that do good enough. And Paul comes out, and it's shocking. It is shocking that Paul says God loves ungodly people. God loves the ungodly. That's shocking. Murray again, I want to read this. That God could love the ungodly far less that he did love them would never have entered into the heart of man. It never, you never, ever, ever would have come up with that. And it should come with such a force that it should make you want to fall down and worship that God that has loved us with an everlasting love. Um, Gerhardus Voss, and I, I may pick up on this, one of my favorite quotes in all of church history, uh, says, the best proof that God will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. The best proof that God will never cease to love us is that he never began. And I might say, the best proof that God loves us even when we fail as Christians and we fail and we fall is that God loved us when we were ungodly. The best proof that he's not, and that's where Paul's going to go, the best proof that he's never going to stop is that when he loved us in our fallen state, he loved us when there was nothing lovely about us, nothing to commend us. If people tell you, and this is a common evangelical slogan today, you're so precious and God just loves you so much for who you are, no, you're not. You're not. Let me say that this morning. You are so ungodly and God loves ungodly people. That's a theologically correct statement. You are so precious and wonderful in yourself, and I just want to cuddle with you. That's not, that's not what God, that's not how he views us. We, we are under the wrath of God by nature, and yet God says, I have loved an ungodly people, and I'm going to justify them, and I'm going to bring them to myself, and I'm going to do everything for them. And so, how do you know? How do you know? Is it enough that... Paul, the Apostle Paul, makes this declaration in verse 6. Is that enough to convince me? And notice what Paul says. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died. Christ died for the ungodly. And notice, notice verse 8. This is the, the centerpiece. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do I know? That God loves me because God has demonstrated that extravagant love that he has for ungodly people by not just sending his son into the world, but by putting him on the cross. And when he puts his son on the cross, the, the everlasting love of God for ungodly people, because Jesus died for me when I was a filthy wretch. Jesus died for me when my heart was polluted and foul and loving every kind of wicked and perverse thing. Jesus died for me when I was ungodly. And so what happens in the words of Augustine, the cross is a pulpit and the message is love. And I want to tweak that this morning. The cross was a pulpit and the message was the sin atoning, wrath satisfying, Satan conquering, new creation securing love of the God man who laid down his life for ungodly people like us. That was the message. When you look at the cross and you say, why is my Lord Jesus nailed to the cross? The, the radical answer is God loved ungodly you. That's the radical answer. When you look at the cross, why is Jesus there? Because God loved ungodly you and me. And it's beautiful. And so when I forget the love of God, when I, when I slide into performance mode, 
when I start to just slip into a works performance mentality about my standing before God and when I I sin and I then feel condemned, I can't be a Christian, how could I have done that? And instead of going back to him and repenting and mourning over that sin and embracing the love that he's already given us in Christ when we were undeserving, we need to go back to the cross. We need to look at that cross and we need to see that at the cross, God was demonstrating the everlasting love that he had for his people. You know, it's always, it's always struck me as remarkable that all the attributes of God meet up at the cross. And at the moment when the greatest exhibition of his wrath is being displayed in the eternal son of God taking the eternal wrath of God on himself for his people, it's the greatest exhibition of wrath that the world has ever seen. If you could nuke every nation on the planet, you would not even come close to understanding the wrath that Jesus endured. That sort of wrath, if you, if you could carry that out, is like dust compared to the wrath that Jesus endured at the cross. And in that very act, it is also the greatest exhibition of the infinite and eternal love of God that the world has ever seen. And so when we look at the cross, we hear the message, I have loved you and I have sent my son to bear your iniquities because I have loved you, not because of anything you have done. Now... There's another danger that we slide into, and that is somehow thinking that God loves me because of what Jesus did. This is actually um, a very real danger that God somehow has to love me because Jesus died for me, that somehow God has to be for me now. Sometimes Martin Lloyd-Jones makes the point that sometimes we sing this way in our hymns, some, there are some hymns and songs that seem to indicate that somehow God the Father is looking on the Son and the Son is saying, Father, I have loved them. I have shed my blood for them. I have done everything for them. You have to love them now. You have to love them because of what I've done. And what Paul is saying here is that God loved us when we were ungodly and he showed that love by sending his Son to take our sins on himself. Um, I love this quote. You're going to get a lot of quotes today. I'm sorry, but I love this. The death of Christ does not constrain the love of God, but the love of God constrained to the death of Christ as the only adequate provision of this love. So the death of Christ does not constrain the love of God, but it is the exhibition of the only adequate way God could show you. If, if you could have, if you today could say, if God would just do this, I would know that he loved me. If he would just heal my loved one, if he would just you know, uh, make my situations at work better, because that's what we tend to do, right? We tend to look at our circumstances, and we tend to think, going through hardship, God doesn't love me. If you don't do that, you are far more sanctified than me, or you're unconverted. Those are two options. Um, I didn't mean to make light of that, but um, I tend to look at my circumstances and, and if you could say to God, Lord, if you, if you would just do this, I would know that you love me. God has said, I have done the absolute greatest thing I could ever do. There is nothing greater I could do so that you can know and be assured and rest in the fact that I have loved you. I have sent my son for you when you were ungodly, when you were weak, when you were sinful, and when you were my enemy. I love you, and you can know I love you by looking at the cross. Thirdly, 
he talks about the time of this love. Notice, notice verse 6. While we were still weak at the right time, I was just pregnant, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It was the fullness of time. Human history had shown that um, it was on a downward spiral from Adam to Israel until the coming of Christ. Depravity continuing to happen. Read your Bible. That's why the Old Testament's not happy clappy. The, whole, the Old Testament, some people say, I don't like the Old Testament. Love the Old Testament because Jesus uh, taught everything on the Old Testament, on the basis of it. It's all about him. It's all pointing to him. But why is there so much darkness and gloom and sin and rebellion? Because God was showing men how hopeless and helpless and ungodly they were. And at the fullness of time, he came into the world that he created, a world that only could be redeemed from within. He came to his own, and even though his own didn't receive him, he went to the cross, he was in the world, he was on the cross, and he did it at just the right time. God fulfilled all his purposes and all his plans, and I want to say this today. I think there's a double meaning here. He does it at just the right time for us, too, in our lives. You know, I was converted at 24, and I look back and I think, you know, I was young and rebellious and wish I hadn't done all the things I had done. Um, but you know what? God redeemed me at just the right time. And maybe you were, maybe the, the gospel was applied to you when you were very, very young, a young child. Maybe, maybe after you lived almost a full adult life and God had mercy on you. And it's at just the right time because at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God's timing is absolutely perfect. Absolutely perfect. And so the Apostle Paul would have us understand that the exhibition of God's love is shown to unworthy objects, is demonstrated in the death of Christ on the cross for them, and at just the right time. Well, secondly, the Apostle moves on from there, and this is really the much more. Because if that was all that we said, I feel like that's, you know, that's good. I need that. I could wrap this up. We could go home. We have a lot to meditate on. But Paul says, listen, in a sense, Paul's saying that's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. Notice what he says. He says in verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So if God did everything for you when you were completely unworthy and, and all you had was sin and wickedness in your life and God sent his son to die for you, to justify you by his blood, to cover your sins, to forgive you, to make you righteous. If God did that then, why would he ever stop loving you now? This is why this is the greatest passage for assurance in all of the Bible. It's the greatest because Paul is saying there is more. There is much more. God is going to take you from justification to glorification. He did all that for you when you were undeserving. Why would you fall into this trap of thinking somehow maybe I won't make it? Let me say this this morning. As much as you and I are called to live holy lives, if you ever think that in somehow your pursuit of holiness is going to contribute to your salvation, what makes you think that you won't just stop tomorrow and fail and lose that salvation? This is why you can never, ever, ever make your progress in holiness the exclusive grounds of your assurance. What Jesus Christ has done 
is the only and exclusive grounds of our assurance of salvation. He will never stop loving you. That's not a license to sin. You know, when I think about this and I think about people saying, well, that's a license to sin. You're telling people it doesn't matter what they do. Go have affairs, go rob and loot and do everything wicked. Go do that because God loves you. That's not what Paul's saying. And frankly, the, the glory of this is when you get this, it works and you actually grow in godliness. Far from making you want to sin presumptuously under some idea that God loves me and it doesn't matter what I do, this actually will drive you forward. It actually, it works. It does the opposite. When you get that God loved you when you were in your depravity and he redeemed you, why will he not save you from the wrath to come? I am utterly convinced that for us to go forward and to make strides in in Christian living, we have to get this. You have to get that. If you live a life just constantly fearing, I'm going to go to hell, and I I think more sensitive Christians do this. Again, I think there are a lot of godly, sensitive Christians that struggle with this. If you you struggle with that sort of thing, um, Paul would have you think. Remember, Christianity is a thinking religion. If God did this, then he will do this. If God did everything for me then, why would I not believe that he will do everything for me to bring me to glory? And notice what Paul says. He does this twice. First, he says, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So now if you're in Christ, you're a friend of God. You're not considered ungodly. You're a saint. Though you still sin and and oftentimes grievously, you you are reconciled to God. Look at the language that Paul uses. Notice verse 10. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Look, you had nothing to commend you to God. He redeemed you. Now you're reconciled. You're a child. You're a friend. You you live in communion with the God of heaven. And and yes, he's grieved when we sin. but, But if he did that then, much more now that you are a friend of God, will he not save you to the uttermost? That's, that's where Paul wants you to go to think about what you are, what you were, what you are, what God did for you then, what he's going to do now, and all because he's loved you with undeserving love. As I was preparing this message, and I, I sometimes have these moments where I think, I wonder the realization, what, what it'll be like when we're in glory and we're free from all the sin and all the the doubts and the fears and the failures and the weaknesses and um, the mistakes. Um, and what's being, what's being said here is going to hit us to such a degree that I think we will just be overwhelmed by the truth of this. We talk about grace. When we talk about grace, um, one of the problems I find is that I don't think we really adequately understand that the love of God is so great and so free for his people that we always want to put, we want to put a little regulator on it. We want to somehow regulate it. Well, it can't be that, that good. It can't be that free. It can't be that great. And Paul is saying, listen, there is much more because of the love of God. Um, one final quote. Two more quotes. I'm sorry. This is a big quoting day. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I love this quote. He says, rest assured that God remembers 
all that he did for us in Christ. That is a profound quote, actually. Rest assured that God remembers everything that he's done for us in Christ. Because when we doubt his love, we're saying God has forgotten what he's done in Christ. And somehow based on my performance or my efforts, rest assured, God remembers what he's done. And then one other quote quote that's so beautiful, that Sinclair Ferguson says, you and I do not measure the greatness of God's love for us by our capacity to experience it. Very important. You and I do not measure the greatness of God's love by our capacity to experience it. Our capacity to experience it is governed by and driven on by the greatness of the love of God for his people. I want to say this this morning. If you're in Christ, God loves you so much more than you could ever imagine. Note that I said if you're in Christ. Because you can only know the love of God, the love of Jesus, what it is none but his loved ones know. If you're in Christ, God's love for you is so much greater. Remember the Apostle Paul prayed that they would know the length and breadth and width and height of the love of Christ that passes knowledge. That's what Paul's saying here. There's so much more, and it's, it's all for you, and it's all undeserved, and it came to you when you were ungodly. If you're not in Christ, you have no reason to take comfort in what has been said, because what the same Apostle Paul says in chapter 5 and chapter 1 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So if men will not turn to Jesus, will not embrace the love of God, will not come to him with all their sin and all their pollution and cast themselves on him, if they will not, they are always and will forever be under the wrath of God. And I love you enough to tell you that. And I will stake my reputation on telling you that repeatedly. If you are not in Christ, you are under the wrath of God. And the remedy is, look at where God demonstrated his love for wrath-deserving sinners. God only loves people who are under his wrath. Isn't that beautiful? If you're not in Christ, you're under the wrath of God. And you can't know the love of God. But God only loves people who are under his wrath So embrace the gospel, embrace the Christ, come to him, cast yourself on him, call on him. Um, I love this illustration. I'll leave you with this. One of the Scottish Presbyterians, I believe it was Hugh Martin, um, said, I take all of my my, uh, evil works and I throw them in a pile. And then I take all of my good works and I throw them on that same pile and I run to Jesus. That's what you need to do this morning. All of your filth and ungodliness, throw it in a pile. Anything you think you've done good to in some way merit God's acceptance, throw it on that same pile and flee to Jesus and embrace the love of God. And, and marinate, I'll use a culinary term, marinate in the love of God. If you are trusting Jesus, there is so much more. There's always so much more. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would make us who have trusted in your Son to know what you have done for us before we trusted in him. That, Lord, you would make us to know and understand that your love constrained to his death to demonstrate for us that you loved ungodly sinners like us. Father, thank you for that rich and free grace 
Thank you for the redemption that we have in Christ. We thank you that you will save us to the uttermost because, Lord Jesus, you have finished the work of redemption for us. We thank you that we are reconciled. Cause us to grow in our knowledge, Lord Jesus, of um, our position before you. Grant us humility and brokenness and yet comfort in the knowledge of our sins forgiven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.